I was walking into the studio yesterday, and I look over at Wes Payne's screen, and I don't know, maybe I saw 600 icons on that man's desktop, <laughs> and I just look at it, and I said, Wes, what kind of mess is this? <laughs> okay, okay, don't judge me. I don't normally have desktop icons, so it was actually showing my home directory. It does occasionally get a little bit untidy, let's say. You mean all of those files are in the f- root flat of your home directory? Well, I was doing some tests, and... Uh, I had shared that in a container already, so it, it was just simpler that way, all right? Normally, towards the end of the week, I clean things up. And, and mostly it doesn't really affect because all my serious work is already sorted in subdirectories in a, in a hierarchy, right? Now, unfortunately, I must have tweaked something, or, you know, I am on Neon here, so maybe something tweaked upstream. Suddenly, desktop icons. And I, I'll admit, I'm still learning my way around Plasma. I mean, I've come a long way here, but... No expert. Yeah, you could throw me under the bus, too. We both looked at it and we're like, how do we turn these icons off? Because I thought it was like a plasmoid that was showing desktop icons. That was the assumption I made. And so we were trying to figure out, well, how do we turn that plasmoid off? How do we kill it? Like, what? where is the setting at? And it took both of us standing there looking at this thing and going, I don't know, Wes. Yeah, so actually, you go to the, you, you do go to configure your desktop, which is kind of where I thought. But it's, it's called sure. the view. So you can do folder view or desktop view. And desktop view is pretty much just a wallpaper. Oh, okay. That's good to know. But you know what's funny about that, though, is you and I have been using Plasma Desktop now for a while, what was seven months, eight months, nonstop, and <laughs> it took us that long. Well, it really took you that long to find that. <laughs> I love Plasma. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 290 for February 26, 2019. <laughs> there and welcome into Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's building a pie stack. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Wes. We have a great episode, as we always try to do. We're going to start things off with some great news for you GNOME users. OBS Studio has a new funding model, and then we'll head into the Raspberry Pi corner and pick the very best open source home automation system. Plus... Speaking of Raspberry Pi, we'll cover some Ubuntu updates coming that way. We got a few picks, a few quick picks, a nostalgic chat with our study buddy Kenny. But before we go any further, we have to bring in that mumble room. Time appropriate greetings, virtual lug. Hello. 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 Why, look at that. Brad, you slipped in under the wire during the intro. (laughs) Good job. That must have been some fast driving. I assume following all posted speed laws, though, of course. Brent was uh, on the road right before the show started. So uh, good to see you, Brent. Hello, Bruce, Cubicle Nake, uh, Demchuk, Foursquare, Mr. Badger back again, Minimech, Sevia Machinia. I wonder what that is. Turth is in there as well. And... The one, the only, Mr. Martin Wimpress. Hello, Wimpy. Good to have you here tonight, too. Good evening. Well, now, let's talk about those Gnome Shell performance improvements that I'm very excited about. While Plasma Desktop's been working great, my eye has been over on the Gnome Desktop since the start of the year. Oh, you don't say. (laughs) Oh, yes, I know that was your prediction. I think I still have, like, 20 days to, to, like, pull the eject lever 
and and rob you of your prediction. I think <laughs> so. We'll see. Well, that makes me more more happy to see the news. Today. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? Because they're pulling me in. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's more improvements coming to Gnome, specifically around Mutter too, uh, and latency reductions over the course of Gnome three point two. That's nearly complete, as well as Gnome three three zero. Really, there's been a lot of measurable performance fixes and enhancements to improve the fluidity of the Gnome desktop, as well as addressing latency issues that we've complained about here and there on the show before. And of course, some areas make a huge difference. Other areas are minor improvements. And um, seems like one of the developers leading the charge is a, is a canonical bloke, Wes. Yeah, that's right. Canonical's Daniel Van Vitt. I don't know how to say that, but that's my attempt. And while he's already made some great strides in fixing some issues himself, reviewing, collaborating on patches, the job isn't done. There's really some big-ticket work pending, as he called it. In particular, well, there's a bit of NVIDIA proprietary driver issue that he's been working on to resolve as it, well, it causes Xorg to use 100% CPU and significantly lag during simple work like GLX gears. And yeah, that is simple. Yeah. Now, did you get the number right there? Because that 100% CPU usage, is that what you said? (laughs) Ideally, I would like, I mean, a few spare percentages if you can, NVIDIA. Yeah, they they thought it might be fixed by the recent 4.18.30 driver release, but turns out that this issue is still affecting some users. We speculated when Canonical made the announcement of switching from Unity 7 to GNOME Shell for their desktop. We speculated then that perhaps GNOME would see a pretty nice improvement uh, because they'd have the development resources of Canonical now. And it, I think that very much has... Bared out, uh, specifically on the Ubuntu front, too. Daniel has released a fix for Disco Dingo as well. So you'll get it in the new 1904 release, but it looks like, although I think it's still in testing, they're also looking at backporting some of the some of the fixes to 1804 as well. So 1804 users may get some of these fixes. I think specifically around like screen refresh rates and whatnot. Definitely some of those patches are going to make their way back to 1804. Yeah, Wes, between this and the overall polish that the GNOME desktop has been seeing, the work that's going into 1904 and the new Fedora, it's going to be really hard for me not to run GNOME for the rest of 2019, I think. We'll see. Well, I'm happy for you because, you know, just just because you get to enjoy a first-class free desktop and no other reason. <laughs> Either way, right? <laughs> Either way. I'm like, that's actually a pretty good position to be in, where in in the past I was leaping from GNOME to Plasma to sort of have a stable island of uh, desktop Linux. And now, now at least so far on Intel graphics, with the later versions of GNOME, I have not been able to reproduce some of the same issues. Very, very happy. I'm, I'm remaining cautious because I am aware that sometimes after something's been installed for a while or some weirdo extension gets added, that things can start to go south. So it's with some caution, but I, I think so far it's going pretty well. Speaking of going well, I mean, it was like two, three years ago now, the studio in Jupiter Broadcasting Studio switched over to OBS Studio for broadcasting our live stream and recording videos. And it's been great. It's been great. We switched from the proprietary Wirecast application, which is also very nice. It's gotten better over the years, but uh, OBS just keeps getting great. And now fans like us have even more to celebrate with version 23.0 releasing yesterday, as we record this, with uh, Linux, Mac OS, and Windows releases. 
and some uh, nice acceleration stuff in there, Wes. Yeah, I mean, do we really care about those other operating systems here on Linux <laughs> Unplugged? No. The Linux version of OBS, well, now has support for the VA API interface to allow for GPU-based video acceleration. And while you might not always love the quality you get out of those sorts of things, it seems like a nice application for live streaming where you might just want to go fast and make sure you have no delays, even on a lower-end system that might not have the fastest CPU. You'll also find a bunch of new audio filters, remuxing support, and multi-track audio. Yeah, they, that is really nice. I'm I'm starting to get a little worried. I'm reading through how OBS is doing fundraising now, and uh, there's 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 positives and negatives to it. So the first approach they're doing, aside from just straight up direct donations via PayPal or Bitcoin, is this open collective platform where they write a group of people can raise money for a shared purpose in an open and transparent way even if the group may not have a formal organization body. The Open Collective uses a practice called fiscal sponsorship, where a host organization provides facilities and services that allow the group to accept payments. They have launched a sponsorship program through the Open Collective to sponsor the OBS project. And there's a contributor page where you can contribute money and then you get your logo on there and... Games Done Quick has done that recently so they can get their name on that page. So that's one approach, but it's, it's convoluted. It's even kind of hard to explain. The other approach, which is a little more traditional, but I think is suffering from Patreon fatigue, is they've launched a Patreon campaign to help fund OBS development. Now, OBS is one of the big desktop open source applications now. It's big. It's really, really big. It, it basically Twitch is powered by OBS. Now, most of those are probably on Windows, but um, it's huge. It's just even a great way if you just want to do screen caps. You know, like it's a really, really solid application. Yeah, if you're not streaming at all, it's still perfectly useful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's great for streaming or not. Um, so right now, they have 93 patrons total. There's probably, as we record the show, thousands of people, and we're one of them, streaming to the internet with OBS at this very moment. They have 93 patrons. Now, I got to say, that's up from yesterday. Yesterday was 88 patrons, so it is slowly going up. They're making $1,000. Now, you got to remember that number that Patreon posts right there. It's bullshit. So they're probably making $800, $700 a month after uh, credit cards fail to go through and you take out about 10% of processing fees, 5% to Patreon, 5% to the payment processor. You end up with a number that's lower than what gets posted on Patreon's uh, Page there. That's a best case scenario number. A thousand dollars. That doesn't seem sustainable. Weren't they sponsored by NVIDIA just recently though? Didn't NVIDIA contract them to add support for the 20 series graphics cards and the new way the NVIDIA encoder works there? So on their um, contribute page, they have several sponsors listed there. Um, most of them are individuals. And then there's different tiers you can get in. They don't have NVIDIA listed there. Uh, Games Done Quick is the only one at their gold tier, which is 20000 per year to OBS. There are several at the 250 level. So I'm not sure. If they did, it wasn't through this. Uh, they may have sponsored them in the non-traditional sense. I think it was like contracted to do work. I saw yeah, okay. uh, Jensen yeah. Young, you know, on stage saying how they'd, you know, ask the OBS developers to add this specific feature. Yes, they say, we have collaborated with OBS, the industry-leading streaming application, <laughs> to help them release a new version with improved support for NVIDIA GPUs. That's from NVIDIA. So they're clearly not 
going to go out of business. They're not going to go away. I um, I think where I was going to go, though, with this is part of me would really like it if they just sold a $300 professional enterprise version of OBS. I don't even know what they could do to make it that, uh, maybe a service contract. I don't know. But it, I, I guess I've, I've lost so many really, really great high-end applications that require a ton of work like this over the years that there is this part of me that goes, please take my money. Please make a way for us to pay you so that way you don't go away. I feel that same way about Reaper, Wes. Yeah, right. I mean, these are tools that we want to be able to depend on. So whatever method that can be to ensure that that will continue, I want to support whether that's trying to find ways to contribute, develop a healthy community, or financial support. So this is probably a completely different angle, but, you know, you pay for Final Cut, and that's kind of changed its goals significantly, and you pay for Adobe Premiere, and paying isn't necessarily a guarantee that it will stay around forever. But I do agree that, you know, a, a few hundred dollars support is probably not enough for something that's used by all of Twitch. You'd think there'd be some some sort of partnership they could have more with, with more streaming services? Like, you know, we'll, we're here, we're open, we'll make sure that people are there to use your services. I think they actually have, um, uh, if you follow their Twitter, it does look like they've been talking about a little of that. They're not super good about um, advertising it on their website, but on their Twitter feed 24 hours ago, they were talking about new Twitch mixer integrations and stuff like that. And I think that's based on like direct working with with Mixer. I don't know. I think that's happening more and more. And I'm not trying to like even try to scaremonger and say like OBS is screwed, it's going away, it's being taken advantage of. I'm just noticing in myself this tendency to um, start to get a little worried when they don't directly take money for exchange of the product. I I, I feel I maybe it's me that's that's feeling like a Patreon fatigue, but. I feel like if I go throw in another number there, like it's such a small way of helping. I'd much rather, I don't know, and maybe the way to do it is just a, a direct donation. Maybe that's the way I should do it. Right. We want to feel like there will be others who contribute and that the whole yes. thing could be sustainable that way. But it, it feels like you're kind of burned out. It works for a couple applications. It's not to say that that can't be done, but there's so many projects that have fallen by the wayside where there just wasn't enough support. Is there a feature in OBS that you're missing at the moment, Chris? The only thing that I would say its commercial competitor Wirecast does that would be extremely nice to have OBS do is probably two things. The first one is they have this rendezvous. I'm not, I've never used it. I'm not intimately familiar with it. I have seen it in use, though. Uh, it's called Rendezvous, and it is a peer-to-peer video calling service where each host gets a HD. They get a URL. They click it. It, it, it sets up an HD video session. And in Wirecast, it gives them a dedicated video shot and their own audio track. And it automatically sets them up as a video shot. So they get their own camera source in the application. They all have their own independent audio. They get program playback directly from Wirecast sent back to them automatically. Um, That sounds incredible. Like, that sounds like that's the best thing ever. That would have been so amazing when we were doing Linux Action Show. Um, And the other thing they have, they've had for a long time, is Desktop Presenter, which is a little tiny application that captures your screen, and I think it encodes it as H.264. I don't know what it does. It's using hardware acceleration if it is, and sends that over the network as another camera source. So any computer on your network, you can screen cap. And and it shows up automatically using DNS discovery as a camera shot in the Wirecast application. 
That would be great because it would even do like 30 frames per second or so. If, you, if you're on Ethernet, it could even do more than that. So you could actually capture video gameplay and, uh, and uh, video playback. Wow. It's so cool. Yeah. And, you know, there's, there's cool things that OBS has too, like uh, network sound card support and you know, NDI support and all that kind of stuff that's, that's totally killer. But I would love to see those couple of features come to OBS. Not necessary for what we do. So if you're looking for some significant features in OBS, then perhaps the way to go is to find out what it would cost for the OBS developers to add the features that you want. And instead of just dropping a random amount of money on the project, invest some money in the project to add the features that you want to see. And then you get both things. You get the features you want and you get to support the project. So I would say I am... 100% 100% on board, something we've actually uh, considered on a couple of occasions and have found a bit of uh, pushback. And maybe it was the route it was taken. I'm not sure. I'd have to dig into the history of it. But the project is very established and has a very clear direction they want to go. Additionally, Windows seems to be a pretty clear priority for the project. And so when you come along and say, hey, we'll, we'll even hire the developer and have the developer do the work, or we could contribute to the project, and the answer is kind of like, eh, yeah, we're not really going to upstream it even if you do do the work, so don't bother really. It's not what's in our plan right now. So sometimes, sometimes you get that, and sometimes you get acceptance. It just kind of depends on what the topic is in the project. But I agree, Wimpy. That's a great way to go. I think it's a cool project. And, I, and I'm really glad to see that they added uh, hardware-accelerated video support, even more. There's already been some, but I'm glad to see more. So that's nice. That is nice. But enough talking about that stuff. Enough talking about the OBS project. I think it's pretty cool, though. It's one of those... I think one of the things that I love about OBS Studio... I know I said I was just done, but I just got to bring this up. Now that I was talking about Wirecast. It lets you do stuff on Linux that... When I started this thing, oh my gosh, I had to build crazy ass, horrible Hackintoshes and run Wirecast. And I had to, I had to buy Wirecast a thousand dollars and I bought it several times. <laughs> I did not, li- did not like spending that money and I did not like building Hackintoshes and I did not like having Hackintoshes in production. Yeah, it really does stuff that otherwise on Linux, you would have had to do some like arcane G streamer magic to, to get anywhere close to this. Yeah. And they just keep adding new stuff in like... Um, great, great. They just a little while ago they added in support for doing video playlists, which makes like doing reruns and play pre pre played videos and stuff really nice. It's just it's super great. And um, the uh, the guys that run the live stream here at Linux Academy have ended up using OBS in totally different ways than we use it. Like they they took that setup that I built for them uh, back around Texas Linux Fest, and they've just they've 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 added like switchers and controllers and remote audio and they've got a preview station and they've got a director's like it's they've really taken it to the next level it's so cool to see what you can do with it it's all in that same linux box i built from them you know last uh last uh, june so it's pretty cool uh speaking of which we have a lot coming up the most we've ever run at one time on our meetup page right now so this is our housekeeping section of the show and i want to take this moment to mention meetup.com slash Broadcasting. Next Tuesday, March 5th, we have our study group, the Linux Operating System Fundamentals. Then Saturday, March 9th, we have dinner at scale, Saturday night. And then Saturday, April 27th, it's the Linux Fest Northwest Parking Lot Barbecue, where uh, we always have a good time. So there's a lot going on. Meetup.com slash Broadcasting. 
to get all of that because uh, we'll be adding to that and growing that over time. It's kind of nice because when we travel, Meetup's a pretty well-established platform. And when we travel places, we can drop a Meetup in there and it alerts people that are on the Meetup service in that area that we're there and that we're doing a thing. Yeah, people people already have accounts for various Meetups that are happening in their city. So it's not a one-off thing you have to do for us. Just come find us yeah. and make it easy to meet up. I still have friends that we talk to regularly from Texas Linux Fest last summer. So it's not just a short-term thing. You know, Elle, who's, who's on our team now, um, she met Anthony, the CEO of Linux Academy, at Texas Linux Fest. <laughs> that's, that's how she started working here. I mean, that, that, a, lot, a lot happened at that Texas Linux Fest. And it's not even that huge of a fest, but there's, there's so many ripple effects for when people get together like that. And that's kind of even why we try to replicate it on a smaller scale here with the uh, virtual lug. It's not the same thing, but it gives us sort of like echoes of that, which is pretty great. Um, and we will have our study group next Tuesday. It, it just follows Linux Unplugged live here on the stream. The mumble room will be open. We'll be taking your questions. Kenny, the training architect who put together this course, which is the Linux operating system's fundamentals, is a great guy. And we sat down and we're talking to him about stuff and kind of, you know, preparing, trying to have our ducks in a row, as they say. And of course, uh, we couldn't help ourselves. We started talking about Linux. Hello, listener. Welcome to like um, one day ago, actually, about 24 hours ago. We're sitting here in the studio having a little chat with Kenny Armstrong. He's a training architect over at Linux Academy, who'll be joining us next week for the study group after the show, the little thing we've been Ooh, doing for the I'm community. looking forward to it. And we're doing the Linux Essentials, and we were strategizing about what we should talk about. And as always happens, after we got done talking about the business, we started talking about desktop Linux. Like it, just, that, it just sneaks in. So I started by asking Kenny, I'm like, all right, hold on, save it for the show. I want to know what you're using as your daily driver. Oh, so my daily driver uh, for the last, I'd say, probably about... 10 to 12 years or so has been Fedora. Um, I'm currently running the latest and greatest Fedora. I don't do Rawhide because uh, I like to use my machine on a daily basis. Did you try? Like, I just recently had a go at it. What, a Rawhide? Yeah. Um, I've, I've done it before in the past, but I've have, I have enough, enough experience with Rawhide to know that <laughs> if, if, I need, if I got schoolwork or something to get done that night, then uh, no. We're yeah. going to stick with Stable and we're going to roll with it. Uh, but yeah, so I, I use... I use Fedora and a ThinkPad. That's my that's my main machine. Um, at home, I run uh, BSD firewalls, and I have a CentOS server that I use for a database server and file storage. And I also have two other Fedora server additions that I use for front-end Bastion hosting for a web proxy and my GitLab personal server and media server that I use for various uh, various tools. Like what kind of media server? Are you talking Plex here? I, I run Plex, and but I've actually gotten into MB a lot more lately. Is that right? Yes. I have found that MB suits my needs far better than Plex has done. Um, and I know a lot of people shy away from MB from the whole, oh, but it's written in .NET. Well, here's the deal. Uh, they used to run the, the mono.NET, which would be problematic trying to run it with an Apache server. But with... Microsoft giving all kinds of love to the Linux world, they decided to release their .NET Core for free. And along with that, they run it on all the other platforms, uh, certain components they can actually pull down the source code to. So when that happened, people found that it operated so much smoother. It was a lot easier to work with. It didn't go haywire like Mono would sometimes do. 
And the MB project ported their core code over to the actual .NET SDK from Microsoft. And I got to say, it, it runs like a champ. I've got far less crashes and far less issues ah. out of MB running on .NET than I do with Plex, even though its core is Python. Huh. Is that what drove you to switch to MB? Was the stability? Well, the stability, the, uh, the feature set that came with, uh, with MB out of the gate, as opposed to what you had to pay the extra uh, Premiere features for with, mm-hmm. with Plex, there, there are certain features out of MB that I, I get more out of. Um, so how long have you been using Linux on the desktop? Linux on a desktop, I have used it nonstop since, uh, I'd say 2005 is when I first started using it like well, every single bad. day. You're a veteran for sure. It's not bad. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I used it off and on before then. I tried Mandrake and OpenSUSE. <laughs> what about, do you, do you dabble in the land of Debian at all? Yes, I have. Um, I, I have a soft spot in my heart for, for Debian as a Debian itself. Uh, Ubuntu, you know, I get it. I've used Ubuntu for a while. <laughs> Oh yeah, we um, all get it. <laughs> yeah, we all get it. But, uh, um, but when you know when when you're a sys a sys engineer by trade and a a hardcore, I just like to really tinker with things. You can either do Arch if you want to build it up from scratch on your own, um, or if if you still need to get stuff done but you still want to tinker, then to me Fedora is is a nice, mm. lovely fit. Mm. And I I was on the Red Hat bandwagon for a long time, working for my RHCE and everything, and and pretty much everywhere I've worked at, it's always been. You know, everything is RHEL based. So just, it was a lot easier to translate the skill sets from Fedora to the RHEL environment. And the cool thing is when people would ask about, hey, what's coming up in RHEL? You already know because you ran Fedora. That's true. I do like that. So desktop since 2005, did you use Linux in other capacities before the desktop? Or did you start with the desktop and then get into server stuff and get into further from there? Uh, No, when I very first started out, I actually started on Solaris Unix back when I was in the Army. Um, We had, uh, I was a missile systems technician, and some of our equipment ran on like a very, uh, I don't want to badmouth it, but it was a, uh, (laughs) it was an interesting, it was very interesting how they put it together, slimmed down version of Solaris Unix. Mm -hmm. And so I cut my teeth on that. And when I got home, I was all like, you know, hey, I found that this is back when they used to sell uh, Linux box sets on the shelves at stores in Walmart in South Carolina and the backwater of South Carolina (laughs) of all places. Ah, Those were the days. They were. Yeah. Yeah. I cobbled together 30 bucks and bought a box of uh, Linux Mandrake off the shelf, took it home, ran it. I was like, hey, this is, you know, the core, the core utilities are essentially the same. There are some minor differences. So I dabbled with it for quite a while. And then when I went to go work for an internet service provider in South Carolina, they, everything was done on Red Hat Linux in the background. But then, of course, we had to use Putty from Windows Machine to get in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Been there. And I was like, oh, okay, yes, you know what? So bad. So when I went home, I was like, I got rid of Windows. I got tired of dealing with Windows. I, I threw, back when it was Fedora Core, uh, I threw that on the desktop and, and I didn't look back. Wow. And that was, I've been there ever since. Hmm. Well, I got to say, when I was going through your course, I took your course. Kenny's got uh, a course that we're going to be doing like a snapshot of in our study group coming up. Um, the part that I enjoyed the most was the history stuff. Even though I've kind of been here since the 90s. Uh, and I wondered if that was the part of you, the part you put together that you enjoyed the most creating? Absolutely. <laughs> um, as I said previously, I'm a history major. So anything delving into the history is something that I enjoy. Mm-hmm. That's going to spark my passion. And it's really difficult to get me to shut up. 
once I get started on it. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you, Kenny. As somebody who's been appreciating history a lot more recently, I really enjoyed that part. I, I look forward to the study group next week. It's March 5th, right after Linux Unplugged. All the details are over at the Meetup page, meetup.com slash Jupiter Broadcasting. Kenny, thank you. If you can't make it to the study group next Tuesday, I've got good news. As the uh, VP of community, I have the lever on the free content. And in March, I'm releasing Kenny's course, the Linux Operating Systems Fundamentals, as free to all community users at Linux Academy. So if you're not a free community user yet, linuxacademy.com slash join, sign up for the free account. And then March, when I pull that lever, we're going to release the full course that Kenny put together It's um, about two hours of uh, video content as well as some other information in there. I took it. I thought it was great. But speaking of freeing all the things, we need to free up the Internet of Things in the studio, Mr. Payne. I know, right? How can we let proprietary software so deep into the heart of JB? Yeah, you know, things like random things that run Linux or things that integrate with other things or... Uh, and, and it's all functional, actually. So far, i got to say, that's been nice. But we've always wanted to move it over to something that was c- free and controlled by our own systems. And uh, so Wes and I have been trying to put together a segment to talk about this for a while. And we realized where we were getting hung up on was an area that we thought maybe some of you are getting hung up on. And so we thought we'd put together some tests and figure this thing out. And... Um, Ironic Badger, Alex, in the uh, Mumble Room, also has an active deployment, and uh, we'll chat with him about his setup in a minute. So to sort of preface it, I, I've been really hung up on which solution to use, Wes, because there's there's like a few of them. As is so often the case in open source, we have too many options to choose from, and that's everything from like a framework in Python that would let you talk to these things at a low level and roll your own solution to Home Assistant, which which is kind of the does everything, discovers your devices, and presents a shiny GUI. So it can be hard to know, like, how deep do you want to go and and how much control do you actually need? Yeah, and then there's also what devices do you need to talk to because there's other products out there, not products, but I guess projects would be the way to put it, that, uh, like Homebridge, that can manage a whole other range of devices that can fit in with some systems or can be standalone. It's very confusing, Wes. So how did you you even kind of wrap your head around it and break it down? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, first, I I spent just like a lot of time reading, surveying, talking to some of my friends and coworkers and people I know who played with automation, smart things in general. And it seemed like there was kind of a, a couple general classes Obviously, like lighting comes into play and smart switches. Hughes is a particular one. And then maybe controlling a couple other things on the network. Then you have sound applications, things like Sonos. Maybe you're interfacing with a Chromecast or DLNA on the network. And maybe you're using Z-Wave. I, I in particular, have like some window and door sensors that I've got set up. Or you've already bought into MQTT. There's so many different little communities that you might actually want support in. So I just try to get enough, a roughly representative sample going on my own home network. And then I I picked the ones that I thought were both the most interesting to me and seemed like they had kind of the most momentum. And that looked like Home Assistant, OpenHab, and Domotics. All right. Home Assistant, OpenHab, and the other one that I'm not as familiar with, is is it Domotics, you said? Domotics. Yeah, exactly. All three open source? All three open source, yeah. Now, they're all relatively simple to get started with. I installed all of them on Raspberry Pis, on my laptop, on a server machine, on a desktop, 
All pretty simple, but I got to say, Home Assistant is by far the easiest. Both OpenHab and Home Assistant provide Raspberry Pi images that are good to go, and OpenHab in particular has fantastic documentation really just throughout. But Home Assistant also has VM images. They've got it really easy to just install using Python if you've already got pip going there. And of course, more advanced instructions for Linux, Raspberry Pi setups, basically whatever you want. Mm. So it sounds like out of the two of them, Home Assistant is a little easier to get going on an existing Linux install that you might already have on a LAN. Now, if you get Demotic set up, you'll kind of understand what's going on, but they didn't have a first-party Docker image that I could find, so it, it took a little bit more to get involved. That said, they have this really great long PDF. I know, I know, it's long, but it's just this great documentation that they've got that really covers exactly what's going on. And, and it made me start to feel that Demotics is almost like, if I can make like a really terrible distro analogy here, Demotics is sort of free BSD, where it doesn't have quite as much plugin support, and it's a, it has this kind of own style of getting configuration done. Maybe moves a little slower. And then in the middle, you've got OpenHab, which is which is maybe Manjaro. It's Arch-like, but they're trying to get easier. You can do a lot more in the GUI these days, but it has tons of flexibility, but you, you might have to dig in a little bit. And then way at the front over here, you've got Home Assistant, which is, which is maybe elementary. They do things for you. Like, I just showed up in the studio, right? I was running here on my laptop. And I've already discovered like half the stuff that's running here. It just presented it. It didn't oh, ask yeah? anything to me. So I can I can control the TV. I can control the shield. Just done. You can control the TV. I was wondering about that. That would be really nice. So it kind of depends on where you think you might want to fall in, in that spectrum. And when I'm looking uh, at our show notes here, it looks like, Alex, you landed on Home Assistant as well. Was it for ease of use for you? What, what, what compelled you to choose Home Assistant out of maybe the other most common one that I see emailed into the show would be OpenHab? Yeah, so a friend of mine, um, he, before Christmas, wanted to automate his Christmas tree lights. And he uh, found a, a video on YouTube, had a, an ESP8266 Node MCU LED light strip thing um, that was based around an Arduino kit and um he used home assistant to control that to turn his christmas tree lights on and off and i thought hmm that looks pretty fun let's let's give that a go and there's been a few things that have really impressed me about home assistant in particular i must admit i can't comment on open hab at all but home assistant is so good that i don't feel the need at this point to look around and you know for me in particular the community really is fantastic um there's an extremely active Discord uh, channel that you can join. And just last night, actually, um, I was trying to debug some lights in my house that are running on an MQTT protocol. And every time I restarted the Docker container that was running Home Assistant, the lights would go off, which was getting really annoying when you're tinkering and you're restarting things you know, all the time. Uh, the lights would go off every two or three minutes and wife did not like that and etc. And I jumped into Discord, and 10 minutes later, they'd helped me rewrite the firmware that was running on the ESPH266s that I have, the Node MCUs, helped me rewrite the firmware to get rid of that issue. So now when I restart the container, nothing goes wrong. So yeah, community's brilliant. The documentation also for Home Assistant is extremely good. Um, they have an unbelievably high number of different device integrations um, as Wes said, a lot of it is self-discovered, but for things that aren't, like Google Assistant, for example, is supported. 
you can just read the, the documentation and within 10 minutes be a quote-unquote expert on the topic. Um, the other thing that I like is I try to drive everything through automation and where possible Ansible and config files. Um, so for me, I've written an Ansible role, which um, it just installs the config, does a config check on the server, and then I can store the whole thing in Git. So it lowers that barrier to entry. Like you say, when you want to nuke and pave a machine or a server or whatever, you don't really want to spend days resetting up the automation for your house. And so for me, I can store all of that stuff in Git and never have to worry about it. Um, so that's great as well. The projects that you can do with this this stuff is really cool. So the house we've moved into um, in America has a, a washing machine that's in the garage, which is out away from our main living area. Now in England, a washing machine, we used to walk past it and see the cycle had finished and be like, right, okay, time to take the clothes out. But here, the, the laundry area is out of sight, therefore out of mind. So what I've done is I've flashed um, a smart plug with an open source firmware. It monitors the current draw of the washing machine. And once it dips below a certain threshold for a certain period of time, it then says, hey, I think your laundry's done. Go check. And it will post to a Telegram bot, which I have to reply to that says, yes, I've emptied the laundry before it will get rid of, the, and it will keep reminding me every 30 minutes until I do that. Wow. Okay. That is a, that is a clever solution. That's pretty cool. I really like that. I, I have been thinking after the studio, I want to expand this to measure all kinds of stuff and voltages and tank levels and positions of, of, of gear in the RV. And I, I think I, I also want to have something set up here in the studio in Texas. So I, I, I'm really, I'm really excited by both Wes. You seem to like home assistant, Alex, uh, you've been using it for a while. You've got a GitHub repo that will link. It looks like, is this for, uh, using Ansible with home assistant? Is that what you've got here in your repo? Yeah. So I wanted to be able to develop my configuration on my laptop and then push it to my server instead of having to use Vim, uh, over SSH all the time. So I just use Ansible to literally copy the files from one place to another. You can do that however you want, but I love Ansible. So that's what I did. I was about to say, looking at it, um, Audience members, don't be put away by the Ansible, even if you don't use it. Like, there's some YAML and then some regular config files, so it's all very readable. So, Wes, your takeaway from using Home Assistant and the others is that we're going to set one up in the studio. It sounds like Home Assistant would be a pretty good way to go. Is there anything we're really missing out on that you could tell from your initial looks? A couple things. Um, it, it seemed like uh, OpenHab is super capable. I really don't want to sell OpenHab Sharp because I was super impressed. It probably has the most plugins, at least... I don't know about the most, like if you weighted them by relevancy, but just going on bare number, so many different plugins, and they, it seems like they've got a really robust model. You can model your whole house and you know, kind of put like, have it understand which devices are in which rooms. They've got home home bridge integration. They've got mm. they've got integration with IDE or with cloud services. So you can even if you're not using a smart assistant or something, you can still use the cloud APIs to to convert speech to text. Super robust, but you don't quite get the same level of first-use ease. When when I first set up Home Assistant, it prompts you to create a new user, get logged in. OpenHab was easy too, but you're presented, you're presented with like three different UI choices. It's not clear where the default is or what you should do. And while that's been improving a lot, the UI that they're building still doesn't expose everything the configuration file does. So either way, you're stuck 
learning and going into the deep end. So I'm um, going to be giving a talk on Home Assistant at Linux Fest Northwest. Thanks, Chris. And um, <laughs> one of the one of the other things that I haven't mentioned about Home Assistant is that they do offer a cloud-based hosting of Home Assistant with Hass.io. So you can self-host it, which is what I do because I prefer to keep everything on my LAN that I possibly can. Um, but they do also offer a hosted service, which is super duper duper easy to use. Can I ask you really quick then, one thing I, I'd been using Home Assistant in the past and sort of came back to it, re, rebuilt my install, which was all very easy. And I was surprised to see how much more stuff can be configured in the GUI than when I last used it. But what I was disappointed by is the app I'd been previously using no longer worked. I guess at some point they changed their authentication flow. Have you run into those problems or have you, do you have an app that you like that has just kept working? I just use the browser. So this is something that's changed fairly recently. Their default UI has changed to something called Lovelace. And this is this is based around the concept of cards. And you can do pretty much whatever you can conceive of with a card. You could have a map of your house on an iPad on the wall, for example, and just tap this part of the screen you want to turn the lights or the climate control on or off in. Um I interact primarily, though, with my Hass th- through the UI on my computer, but also through the Telegram bot that I mentioned. So if I want to set the, the heating, I'll just send a, a Telegram message, or I will use Google Assistant. You know, I, I very, very rarely actually use the interface, I must be honest. Oh, interesting. See, one of the things I really enjoyed, I remember sitting in bed at one point in a previous home and couldn't quite yell at my assistant enough to do what I wanted. And having having Home Assistant right there where it turns on or off my light over the LAN with no reliance on any cloud service, that was really nice. Yeah, so for that, you could build a very simple MQTT button that publishes to a topic. Cool. You press the button that's on your nightstand, and then that just sets the bedtime routine going. So in my house, for example, I just say it's bedtime. And 20 minutes later, all my lights fade out and it's very slow, gradual process. And then one minute before the lights go out, so I know to put my phone down, the lights do a little blip and then they go off completely. That's pretty great. That's pretty great. I, I, I like uh, I like all of the effort putting in re-implementing a button and a switch, uh, but uh, worth it. <laughs> That's pretty good. Well, uh, last week after the show, I bought a, a Raspberry Pi rack that was recommended to me on Twitter. You know, it's like an acrylic Ooh, four boy. Raspberry Pi stand. Yeah, what do you think? Can you set it up? You think it'd work on there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, oh, there's so many services we can get deployed. All right. That'll be our next project now is the uh, Raspberry Pi JB1 server farm. I was really waiting to see which way that went. Uh, I didn't want to sway your your vote, so I didn't mention this before. Uh, but I did do an interview with uh, the, uh, I believe, the founder of Home Assistant, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, way back. And it was just just a great chat. So uh, if you want to watch a little bit of additional Home Assistant content, link in the show notes. Hey, let's talk a little Raspberry Pi. We have some updates for you uh, Raspbian users out there. The Raspberry Pi Foundation is finally rolling out the uh, 419 kernel, which is a nice improvement because the uh, last version was based on 414, like a CentOS user. And, uh, and now going to 419, you'll get a lot of nice improvements with that. And you might be wondering, friends, well, geez, with these faster kernels and updates to 1804, is there... Is there changes coming down the road for Ubuntu Mate on the Raspberry Pi? So we went to the one, the only, Martin Wimpers, and we said, Wimpy, what's going on in the land of Raspberry Pi and Ubuntu Mate, sir? 
Yeah, we're making new images at the moment. I say we, uh, me. <laughs> I'm making new images for uh, the Raspberry Pi 2, 3, and 3 Plus uh, for Ubuntu Mate. But um, this is really um, a bean work that's delayed, and there's been some background goings on that I've been aware of at work. So um, I'm uh, standing on the shoulders of giants here. In December, we uh, decided to double down on the Raspberry Pi at Canonical. And with the 1804.2 release, which came out two weeks ago, I think now, you can get um, full-blooded, cloudinet-enabled Ubuntu server images for the Raspberry Pi 2, 3, and 3 Plus for 1804.2, both the um, ARM 32-bit and ARM 64-bit for the Pi 3 boards um so what that means is we've shined off the rough edges that existed in the um in the raspberry pi implementation and those are legit images now that are being regularly produced alongside all of the rest of the build images does canonical see a uh, like a server workload here like a raspberry pi's in production type thing well yes we see raspberry pi's in production all the time not just the raspberry pi um, but also the compute module boards. But in a server capacity, like like running services? Not in the server sense that you're thinking of. So we've obviously got Ubuntu Core, which has had reference images for the Pi since day one, uh, and those have improved as a result of this work as well. So there are new um, uh, images of those. But there are some customers that are working on IoT stuff and... They want to use Snaps for all of the reasons why Snaps were, you know, designed for IoT and are good for IoT, but they don't want to make the full paradigm shift to Ubuntu Core just yet. So they want a classic Ubuntu system on which they can deploy their Snaps. So we're seeing this as a as a bridge to getting people, you know, using Snaps in the in the Ubuntu ecosystem. And also, increasingly, um, people want to develop and test snaps on ARM platforms, and the Raspberry Pi is ubiquitous. So by having 32-bit and 64-bit images of the Pi, uh, then pretty much anyone f- for a you know, l- low barrier of entry can, um, can create snaps, test snaps, and do development and target ARM you know, on that platform. And then as a spin-off, now that work has completed and that you know, finished a couple of weeks ago. Um, I've been wanting to update the Ubuntu Mate images for the Raspberry Pi um, since 1804 came out, but I knew all of this work was going on, and I wanted to base the next images of Ubuntu Mate on a proper Ubuntu kernel. In the past, I took a kernel from the Raspberry Pi Foundation and side-ported that, and uh, was using that as a means. So it's basically the Raspberry Pi Foundation kernel with Ubuntu user space. So technically, it's not really Ubuntu. You know, there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't work there as a result. These new images use the um, the Ubuntu kernel that's maintained by the Ubuntu kernel team and the Ubuntu security team, and they're on the same release and security patch cadence as the other kernels we produce. So I'm much happier about that. A proper pedigree. Yeah, that does sound like great news, Wimpy. And that's all for 1804, though. This isn't this isn't even work for 1904. 
Does it does it pay it forward? Yeah, these images um, obviously um, uh, will be recreated for the twenty series, um, but for the for the pie images, we're just targeting um, the LTSs. Oh, okay. And then there's some other work going on as well. So I've spoken about this in the past. Is that the the thing that makes the Raspberry Pi so successful, or one of the things that makes the Raspberry Pi so successful? is there is this software ecosystem that you can buy into. And and there is hardware components, there are hats and all, all manner of goodies. And then the software to enable and utilize all of these add-on peripherals and devices all exists in the Raspbian archives. And that's what makes it a you know, really compelling platform because all the tools are there to build whatever you want to make. So uh, there's a guy at Canonical now called Dave Jones. He's a longtime uh, Raspberry Pi community member and contributor. And he's working on bringing that whole ecosystem of software over to Ubuntu. So all of that stuff that's packaged up in the Raspbian archives and only exists there, he is working on bringing it to the Ubuntu archives and all of that work, or at least most of that work, is going to get um, SRU'd to 18.04. And Dave is also one of the lead contributors to a project called Pie Wheels, which is a whole bunch of um, pre-compiled Python modules specifically for the Raspberry Pi. And he's going to be standing up infrastructure uh, on Ubuntu, which is a rebuild of all of that software archive um, available um, for Ubuntu because, you know, there are differences in the library versions between um, Debian and Raspbian and Ubuntu, and he's taking care of all of that. So there's quite, there's quite a lot of work going on there. It's an exciting time, and it was the right time to, to reboot the Ubuntu Mate um, images for the Pi. That is delighting to hear. Um, I just uh, don't know what my problem is, but... I just bought myself another Raspberry Pi. I was listening to Choose Linux, and the guys were talking about Raspberry Pis, and I was like, you know, I'm getting another one. <laughs> so, Wimpy, I have one quick question. Uh, all of that was really interesting. What's SRU'd? What does that mean? Oh, right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the name of the process of um, taking a new or updated piece of software and bringing it back to the LTS or a past release. So if it needs um, significant patching in some respect, then uh, it gets patched and then it gets brought back into the, in this case, the 1804 archive. And in some cases that can just be simply adding a patch to the Debian package, or in some cases, you know, not many people realize this, but sometimes software actually gets revved up to a newer version. So sometimes it's non-trivial to apply all, all of the necessary security patches. And if there's no you know, ABI or compatibility breakage, then a potential option is to just bring a newer version of the package to the archive. So an SRUing is the means by which we manage that. Yeah, it is something you read when you see when you see like a news article about like the GNOME performance fixes we were talking about earlier. You read at the bottom of like uh, Michael Lerbel's post, he talks about how it's getting SRU'd for 1804 or 1810, I think he might have said. Right. Um, and you look at that and you go, what does that mean? Well, that's that's it right there. And it's something that is just sort of a, I, I, don't, I don't think Canonical is the only company that uses that term, but I, I don't really see it used anywhere else. Yeah, it stands for Stable Release Update. Yeah, okay. Is that something you guys created? It feels like it's 
Is it an industry term or is it, is it a canonical term? The the acronym predates me. I don't know if this is um, a Debianism that Ubuntu has inherited or if this is an Ubuntuism. It's just the term that I know. <laughs> you know, I guess I, I wish I, I am just so tempted right now. If this wasn't a live show, I would take... I'm trying to do it as I talk. I would take the 30 seconds and I would go Google this because I want to know now. But uh, let's see. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I get when I Google it. Not enough. Well, thank you, Wimpy. Thank you very much. Why don't we, uh, why don't we get my attention back by talking about some great picks? I found one and Wes found one. Let's start with Mr. Payne's. It's called Subsync. Oh, I bet I can guess what this is, Wes. This is for keeping all of your submarines in sync. Oh, yes. I mean, it's very dangerous when you've got those thermonuclear warheads on board. You got to make sure you're in sync. No, no. Think <laughs> language agnostic, automatic synchronization of subtitles to video. What? Yeah, I know, right? I'm sure you've all been there. You got this subtitle file. Some generous soul on the internet bothered to go write out all the subtitles for something. But it's not quite working with the version that you have. So here we go. Is this watching the video, watching their lips and figuring out how to sync the video? Or is it using like a time code? It's in the uh, subtitles. How does that work? How much magic is involved? They don't talk too much about how they're doing it. No, they don't. But they even talk about you can like you can actually even send the results right to VLC. Of course you can. Mm -hmm. Of course you can. I tested it a little bit and it it, it did seem to work. Yeah. So, uh, okay. They're looking at a 10 millisecond window of time to determine if that window contains speech. They look at that, and they say we have two binary strings, one for the subtitles and one for the video. We try to align these strings by matching the zeros with the zeros and the ones with the ones. We score these alignments as matching digits or mismatched digits. The best scoring alignments determines how to offset the subtitles in time, how to offset them, and how to properly sync them with the video. This is great, Wes. This is so cool, Wes. Yeah, the other nice part, too, is, I mean, it's written in Python. It's easy to get going, and it's really not that long. So I think I'll be giving it a read after the show. Now, my pick is, uh, it's on topic for me. Um, this is something that I'm pretty passionate about, and that's making it easier for people to podcast. We've been releasing tools on our Jupyter Broadcasting GitHub to sort of enable some of that. And this is in that vein. It's called Podcast Generator at podcastgenerator.net. It's an open source podcast publishing solution. It promises, now I will admit I do not use this, um, but I just think it's such a neat initiative and I love that it's open source. So I wanted to make you all aware of it because surprise, surprise, I'm, I'm not willing to migrate our entire infrastructure over to this project just to try it out for the show. If we had not already found a solution, this would be really worth looking into. Yeah, I mean, we are thrilled with our solution, so we're good. But it's obviously something we're keeping an eye on, and we want to let you know about it. They they offer a kind of a click-and-go sort of setup. It basically works on any web host that has PHP and gives you a nice intuitive web interface to publish audio and video podcasts. Yeah, that's the part. Like, think of this as a CMS system that helps, like, if once you've got your, your finished edited show, where do you put it? How do you submit it to stores? Where do your tags go in your descriptions, and how do they get the MP3? podcast generators for that yep you know and it, it maybe maybe you want to do a, a podcast and you're not a web developer and you want something that looks great on mobile where people can get links and stuff like that check it out link will be in the show notes which is in your mobile player or you can go to linuxunplugcom slash 290 for subsync and podcast generator okay well that'll bring us to the end of this week's show so i'm going to just take a moment and say go over to linuxunplugcom slash contact 
and send us your screenshot of your dot files. How bad is that? We have a reckoning coming. We have a reckoning coming. We're keeping that soapbox fresh and ready to go. So let us know, linuxunplugged.com slash contact. You can like post it up on Imager or something and send us the link. Or you can tweet me at Chris LAS and uh, it, attach a screenshot of it. We're collecting the evidence now because I suspect, I suspect it's real bad. It's, uh, it's real bad. Let us know. At Chris LAS for me, he's at Wes Payne. Go find Wimpy over at the Ubuntu Podcast, ubuntupodcast.org. Mr. Wimpress, uh, since uh, you're on holiday over there on the show, is there anything else you want to give a little plug ski for this week? How about user error? I've really been enjoying that recently. Yeah, yeah. How about user error? I agree. I agree. That show is so great. It is absolutely one of my, as soon as it's out, I go da- I, I download and listen to it. Even if it's super early in the morning, error.show, Popey, Joe, and Daniel Foray just uh, really have meshed, just made that show so great. So great plug. All right. There you have it. Links to everything we talked about, including Alex's Ansible repo, links to the stories, all of that. LinuxUnplugged.com slash 290 or in your podcast player of choice. Also, take a look at those chapter markers. If you're not in a podcast player that supports chapter markers, consider an upgrade. If there's a segment you want to hear again or something you want to skip, chapter markers make that really easier. If you're trying to go back and find something we talked about, and make a really easy jump right to that spot. I'm a big fan. I'd love to hear from you at Chris LAS. Join our Telegram group, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram, and meetup.com slash jupiterbroadcasting. See you next Tuesday! Pick our title, jbtitles.com. Let's go see if we can find something. Yeah, Brent, did you do your job today? Oh, yeah, let's see how Brent did. I mean, he's, I, I believe he's under That's the wire. Not I don't even know. I know, if, I know. Yeah, he might not even have, I mean, no, I know him. I saw he was IRC, and so there's no excuse. Uh, yeah, I'm here. Uh, Wes, I think you took uh, one of my titles here. I think uh, you, well, you won up You won up my title. I think you deserve this one. That is, you're right. Uh, so, so Brent submitted a proper pedigree. And Wes came in one minute later with with proper pie pedigree, which is a little better. It's got more peas in Maximum it. Maximum alliteration, <laughs> right? Isn't that the rule? Yeah, I was literally yeah, well, typing yeah. that out when I saw him submit it. <laughs> you should submit it and we should give it to you then. because Oh, come on, Wes, we can share. I keep picking Coda Radio titles, so it's like it's going to my head. That is one of our moves on Coda Radio is to have, to have the alliteration like that. Wes, um... Was there a was there a, like a small package at the studio when you got there today? Oh yeah. Oh man, you would be doing me the biggest solid if you'd break that thing open and put one of those little discs in the fish tank for me. That's their long lasting food, and it didn't arrive before I left. And I've been worried the fish weren't going to get fed. Yeah, absolutely. No problem. <sighs> Joe was right. Joe was right about the fish tank. <laughs> That's so funny to hear <laughs> on air, guys. You know, it's these bags. <laughs> oh yeah, can you do the dishes horrible. too? <laughs> oh, actually, I do need to take the garbage out. <laughs> I can handle that too.